Good Gab, sponsored by Skillskin, a nonprofit organization empowering individuals with disabilities through employment. Good morning, everybody. Uh, today we have Gabe Minchow with North Point, Washington. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Gabe, how long have you been in Spokane? April 6, 2014 is when I arrived. Okay, so this is starting to feel like home. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Coming I mean, up on 10 years. It's coming, yeah. That is on the horizon for sure. That's what, a big one for me. Wh- how, uh, what brought you here? Um, so I'm going to self-disclose a little bit. Hopefully it doesn't make anybody uncomfortable. Uh, but I came here on a one-way ticket for treatment for really? alcoholism. Yep. Fr- from where? From Southern Oregon. Okay. The Rogue Valley. Well, tell us more. <laughs> I will tell you more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh, that's. I mean, that's a. Where do you even start? So you with didn't that? even know where we Spokane was. Podcast with like a bomb. <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I didn't know where Spokane was, but that's kind of funny because I had been to Spokane once before. Um, and I do tell this story quite often when I'm sharing with people my experience, strength, and hope. It's, um, a couple years prior, I was coming through with a band. So I grew up in the Rogue Valley. I spent my twenties in Portland. Okay. Funnest decade of my life (laughs) and the most damaging decade of my life. Um, I was in an indie rock band, and I'm a classically trained cellist and, and vocalist. Um, so when I graduated high school and moved to Portland, uh, getting, getting the opportunity to utilize my musical talents in a different setting was like, just floored me. I bet. Yeah. yeah. So I came through Spokane, I think it was 2011, and I was riding around in a party van, you know, with the band, and we played at one of the bars just down the street from here. And it wasn't until I came back through in 2014 and I was in the back of a treatment van on my way to a meeting that I recognized the bar and You're where like, I was. I've been there. It's like, my, what a turn of events. Mm. <laughs> At the time, I hadn't quite gotten into gratitude for my experience as an alcoholic in recovery. Um, but that was an eye-opening experience for sure. I can imagine so. Yeah. So, you know, my arrival in Spokane wasn't entirely by choice. Uh, I found myself in an intervention the day prior. My family and some of my closest friends that I grew up with um, were all gathered around and it was a complete surprise to me. I didn't see it coming. Um, But it was at the end of about nine months of just total misery, um, trying to get sober on my own and succeeding for a couple weeks and then relapsing. And I mean, that tape just played over and over. Um, So when they presented me with this, I'll refer to it now as opportunity. Yeah. Um, I saw it as a ticket out of that mess and um, a ticket into the unknown, which at that time seemed like it had better chances for me than what I had been doing. So Mm. I uh, was escorted here and picked up by uh, the treatment center and brought into a house up on Five Mile. And I had one condition, though. I said, I'll I'll go ahead and try this. Um, But if I don't like it, I'll give it a week. If I don't like it, I'd like the opportunity to come home. And they said, sure, you betcha. And so after a week, I'm on the phone. Of course. Like, yeah, you can come home if you can get here. (laughs) Like, oh, there's a caveat? Dang. (laughs) I had a backpack with 10 cents in it and a change of clothes. And it it was, there was snow on the ground in April of 2014. And so I said, well, I could walk out of this because it's not like a lockdown facility. Sure. 
and I could probably make it a couple days. You know, I've, I've gotten pretty crafty and creative over the years in my alcoholism. I could find some fair-weathered friend somewhere. Or I could keep the roof over my head and the food in my belly that's being provided. And that's when I started listening, when I, when I went to meetings and started to hear the message and got a sponsor. And that's when recovery really began. For me, it was about a week after I got here. That seems quick and awesome. Yeah. I was, I mean, sit, I was sitting in a... a Basically, I was in a hospital in Alaska, and the doctor, we were about to go on this crazy fishing trip, and the doctor just looked at me, and I was, you know, partying pretty hard back then, and um, he's like, Steve, you're just not going to wake up one day, because, you know, he had been used to, you know, treating, you know, it's pretty hardcore alcoholics up in Alaska, and, you know, native population, they have, you know, stuff that affects them, and so he just did cut right to it for me. And, uh, that didn't even work for me. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. I'll die. It's good. Yeah. And it was later, uh, when one of my, uh, close friends, he just was like, Steve, I don't think I can be friends with you anymore. And I was like, Holy shit. Yeah. That was, uh, the, the moment for me when I'm like, okay, I gotta like really look at my life. Cause at that point I was just kind of like trading up friends mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, as long as I was doing just a little bit better professionally than everyone else, I was I was good. Yeah, I um, can relate. Man, <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. And, yeah, I, mean, I was one of those alcoholics that ended up in the psych ward multiple occasions because they brought me in via ambulance for seizures. Um, and there was a moment in December 2013 <clears throat> where my one of my best friends, drinking buddies, you know, looking back at it, but at the time felt like my best friend in the world beat the crap out of me Ugh. and kicked me to the curb. Um, and that started a, another downward spiral that wound up with me in jail, actually, for the first time. My, the places our addiction can take us. Damn, I was not expecting this conversation this morning, Gabe, <laughs> but I am sure happy you're here. Yeah, I'm sure happy you're here, man. Living in the moment. Uh, no doubt. Hopefully Absolutely. regret it later. Eh. <laughs> but, you know, that's what they teach us in recovery is our, our character defects, our assets blown out of proportion. Makes sense. So we can we can flip the narrative. What used to be something that I regretted is now something that I can share and inspire hope in other people. So well, I you know <clears throat> preach authenticity a lot. That's something exactly. where my happiness came from is when I started just being real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, sometimes these are some of the real things too, right? Mm-hmm. It's not always pretty. No, in fact, a lot of it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, interesting. Okay. So 2014, you're in Spokane. Um, don't know anyone here and not a soul. So, well, okay. Take us further. Where, how, how did that evolve to like saying, you, you know, you want to be in this community? Well, like I said, it was about a weekend that I started actually listening and, and hearing the message. When I went to meetings, I work a 12 step program got a sponsor and it was contingent to graduate in my treatment program to begin the steps with a sponsor. I think you had to be on step three, you know? Um, so after 30 days, uh, I graduated to phase two. We went, to, I moved into a different house and was given the opportunity to look for employment. And with, I mean, I don't think it's unique to me. I think most alcoholics is either go big or go home. And so I was out there canvassing. I was walking to interviews. I, yeah. I turned in like a hundred applications my first week and I got to choose between three different jobs, and I landed with an insurance company uh, as an intake analyst. So I was putting together the RFPs for um, 
the, I forget what they called them, but the people who went out, basically like the sales reps who were pitching these to, yep. to larger companies. Yeah, um, when it all goes out to bid and all that. Yeah. So okay. I did the so labor, packaged it up, uh-huh. and then they took that and sold it. Yes. Um, which was cool. It was a temporary huh. gig. Uh, I got hired through an employment agency, and it lasted about six months. Um, but that gave me the necessary work experience because prior to that, I mean, my work history was pretty eclectic, but it kind of finished in the service industry in the restaurant. Um, but that six-month stint with that insurance company gave me a foot in the door, and I happened to know somebody um, who um, his family was – there was this little startup organization about 30 years ago that grew into a larger company, got bought out by an insurance company. But uh, the son of the founder was still the acting president at the time, and I was connected to his son. Nice. So that's what got me the interview. The experience got me the job, and I had my first full-time salaried position. It was probably seven months into my recovery. And so that gave me the stability and the foundation to really work my program and get more involved and meet people and build a life here. That's awesome. That's yeah. really welcome to Spokane, too. In my experience, this town, it's like, it's just, you never know who you're going to meet, who you're going to be connected to, but that's where the opportunities come from. Yeah. And uh, that part of your story, just that is Spokane through and through. Yeah. Spokane's yeah. taken care of me this whole way. It's not to say that the last eight and a half years has been all butterflies and rainbows. I've had some pretty serious, I call them crisis chapters, um, and I won't get into that too much, but personal, um, that I've just fallen back on my program. I've fallen back to the basics, going 90 meetings in 90 days, um, getting connected, getting outside of self and uh, Spokane, my higher power just has not let me down. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's not always clear why I'm going through what I'm going through until I'm looking at it in the rear view mirror. Um, but things just keep getting better and better. And, you know, when I first arrived at here, old timers say, you know, I now live a life that's beyond my wildest imagination, you know, things like that. And it, it is true. Gosh it is it. true. Like, I can start to say that now. I'm seeing all of these promises come true. I know. It just takes a little time, right? You just, yeah. Time takes time. Word. I might drop a few <laughs> cliches. I, I love think it. I already have. Well, I'm, uh, cliches are my favorite. So right. thank you. I think Very our good. listeners can definitely appreciate that. Right, listeners? Yes. Yes is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So what are you doing now? Like how, how, um, what kind of work are you into these days? Yeah. So somewhere along the way, I heard somebody say, don't get involved in the treatment field, um, addiction recovery, uh, until you have five years under your belt. And that was kind of in the same breath as you're a newcomer for your first five years, which at the time really bothered me. Right. <laughs> now, what are you talking about? <laughs> Man, I'm two years into this thing and I'm still a newcomer. Uh, but for whatever reason, I followed that suggestion. I haven't followed all of them, but I followed that one. Um, and so it was November, 2019, uh, I was about five and a half years sober, reached out to a buddy of mine who was working at a treatment center and, um, told him I was interested in a career change. I just graduated with my master's. I had been kind of moonlighting as a rideshare driver during my master's. I'd separated with that insurance company. I worked at for four years, the mm-hmm. second one. Um, and so I just got a gig entry level group facilitator and I met some really cool people in that process. Um, and I realized that's where I wanted to be like this for the first time in my life. And especially in my professional career, I'd found a fit that I got to feel that passion and got like excited to show up to work. Um, 
That's an amazing feeling, huh? When that happens, it's super cool. I didn't like think it was possible, right? I thought it was a lie, actually. You know, I kind of took my grandpa's words. Uh, it's like you put your head down, son. And you just work real hard, and mm-hmm. you know things are gonna work out for you. Mm-hmm. And so, I just really never thought that was possible uh, until I got into the work I'm in right now, working uh, in the disability community. It's like purpose. Yeah. Living with purpose. Whoa, that's powerful crafted, stuff. Crafted this mission statement for my masters to improve the quality of life and make a tangible impact in people's lives. Um, I think I flipped that because it's been a few years, but I found that I was doing that. That I was making an impact in these people's lives, and and them finding recovery and hearing a message of hope was improving it. So you're in. I was in, and it was cool. Oh, yeah. I, I picked up as many groups as I could. They they hired me for like five groups a week. I think I was doing like fifteen or twenty. So what? I I know maybe our listeners might would like to understand like what is a group facilitator like? What what does that job look like? Well, it can look different depending on the organization. Um, the one that I was working at, I kind of I want to say that I got a little bit lucky in that um, I didn't have any work experience. And I didn't have any clinical expertise. Right. I had lived experience, and they were cool with that. Um, you don't find that everywhere. So what it looks like is you go in for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, depending on what level of care of the group you're facilitating. So oftentimes the shorter groups are for the people who are coming in fresh off the streets, the detox and inpatient groups. And, you know, an hour and a half is like... <sighs> way too long. <laughs> it's an eternity. You get about 20 minutes in and people want to go outside and have a smoke <laughs> break. Um, and the hour and a half groups are the people who have kind of completed the inpatient setting and have transferred to like a sober living component um, who are doing outpatient groups. And some of the outpatient um, programs are more intensive, like there's partial hospitalization program, which is six hours of programming per day, five days a week. <clears throat> and then there's um, IOP, intensive outpatient, which is generally speaking, three to five days a week for two to three hours, depending on the organization. So group facilitating, you've got a topic underneath a modality. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, they'll provide you with some sort of curriculum, Okay. Um, which I leaned on when I needed to. But for the most part, it was like, yeah, I've been talking about this with my sponsor and with my sponsees and in the rooms for the last five years. I, I'm pretty like, comfortable I got talking this. about this. Huh. And, and that's what I discovered. It, it wasn't so much about having all the answers um, as much as it was f- finding, you know, the realization that the group is the agent of change. So these people, they're just like you and me. Oh, yeah. However long ago, what, ago it was for you and, you know, eight and a half years ago for me, um, who are smart, they're intelligent, they're wonderful human beings that have something to contribute, e- even if they don't realize it themselves. So it's kind of a process of like opening up, opening them up to the world and their peers and, and hearing, hearing them <laughs> talk about these concepts and ideas. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of an amazing thing that happens when, you know, you start to actually hear your own voice and you might even believe it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm ready to look, look deeper. Yeah. And I could understand mm. at that time, like why people suggested wait, you know, wait five mm. years before you get involved. Because I think if I had started sooner, the line would have been too blurred for me. Like when I'm in control of my life, that's generally a bad thing. Like I shouldn't be driving the bus because my best decision making got me to where I was towards the end of my 20s. So 
you know, finding sobriety and finding recovery is this really delicate balance of like learning and, and taking pride in it, but staying humble and right-sized. Um, and when you get into that position, you walk into that room as the facilitator, you've got, you know, 12 people just immediately looking up at you and putting right. you on this pedestal, like you're some sort of recovery guru. And it's you're about just a dude piercing that veil <laughs> yeah. and saying, look, guys, I'm exactly as far away from the next drink as you guys are. I just happened to put a few days together where I haven't drank. And I'd like to share that with you, like how I did it. Love that. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm curious. And I know we get asked this a lot in, in the work we're doing is, you know, how do people access these services? Cause I know some of the questions that come up, it's like, Oh, it's going to be too expensive or I don't know if my insurance pays and, and things like that. Just, I know there's a wide range of, of help out there. Like in your experience, how, how do people start the process? Yeah. I mean, there are a variety of ways to, to enter a treatment program. Um, some of them are harder than others. Some of them require more determination and grit and the gift of desperation than others. And some of them, you know, by luck of the draw, it seems like they know the right person who knows the right person that has a program that has a bed open and it's just like they're in. Um, so it's not the same for everybody. There are people in outreach who their life's work at this time is to network with each other um, and and be able to recognize when somebody raises their hand up for help, whether it's through a Google search or a phone call or an email. The hope is that regardless of their demographic, regardless of what kind of insurance they have or their financial position or their geographical separation, there's going to be some program that offers, offers the services that they're looking for. So... Does that kind of answer the question? Absolutely, it does. Because, yeah, I think it's just like this nebulous thing. You're like, oh, how do I do this? <laughs> you just, the how yeah. isn't necessarily the hardest part. I think the hardest part is wanting to do it, right? I mean, from my experience, going to a 12-step program or going to treatment was like the last option. Like, that's where the people with real problems go. That was my right. narrative at the time. Um, because my Mine image too. of an addict or alcoholic <laughs> was, you know, I hate to say it, you know, sorry to stereotype, but some guy under a bridge with a brown paper bag and I was going to work and I had a car and a relationship and a living situation. I had all these things, although I noticed over time they were gradually deteriorating, <laughs> right? The relationship got more and more toxic. The car stopped running and paint peeling off of it. Yeah. There might be a couple dents. Yeah. The job, it was like, I'm dry heaving and throwing up in the bathroom. Uh, you know, so over time, those things all got, they all deteriorated, but I still didn't identify as an alcoholic until after I was in treatment. And I started realizing that there are a lot of people out here and it affects all walks of life. It doesn't discriminate. Like you've got executives, you've got entry level employees and you've got everything in between. And that's when I learned that I had found my community. Well, that's awesome to be able to yeah, be in one's purpose to, you know, help others mm -hmm. and, and just connect. Um, okay. You've been in Spokane almost a decade now. Um, what surprised you about this community or like, what's uh, why stay? Like why, why here? I don't think there's a simple answer yeah. to that question. <laughs> There's a huge draw for me to be closer to my family. I'm a father now. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old. Um, but I am so plugged into this community at this time, and it's working. I'm, I've managed to build a life that I'm proud of. Um, it's not to say that I wouldn't be successful wherever I went, 
I'm just kind of enjoying the win streak. Um, yeah. I know you want to just keep that going, right? Yeah. Well, do you have some other uh, kind of tidbits around um, maybe the work that you're doing right now and the company you're working for? Sure. Like, I know they're getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And the need is arising. Like, we need more services in Spokane and the surrounding areas. Yeah. Um, what kind of programs are you guys running right now? So I was hired on by North Point um, to represent one of their other brands called Imagine. <laughs> Imagine by North Point. And Imagine started a few years ago down in Boise. Um, one of my counterparts down there, her name's Danielle Phanopoulos. She's actually a, a level up. She's a director of outreach for Idaho. Um, she was marketing adult substance use disorder, SUD, as we refer to it, if I do that moving forward, that's what that means, SUD, substance use disorder. And she kept hearing from referral partners, like, what about the kids? What are we doing to serve the kids? And she was successful in pitching that to executives. And so they opened their first Imagine and within six months, they opened another one and six months later, another one. And they're all within like a 10 mile radius down there and they're all full which is great for business, obviously, but it's also kind of a sad reality that we're facing. And I think a lot of it can be, maybe not a lot, but there's a chunk of it that can be attributed to um, technology, the transmission of information, how rapid and fast it is, and harmful content yeah. um, that our youth are being exposed to. I know they're growing up real quick. Real quick. I mean, I was born in 85, and so we had a computer in our home in the nineties and my dad had his own business. He had a cell phone. Like I grew up with this kind of technology as it, as it kind of spiraled. Um, but it's different now. It's a lot quicker and a lot more harmful. And there's a lot of like social bullying going on. Right. Um, there's a lot of suicidal ideation as a result. And you know, the last couple of years have been really unique for adolescents, um, going to school in their bedroom in front of a computer screen that's definitely had an impact on our community. So anyway, that's kind of a long way of saying imagine really took off in Southern Idaho. They opened a new one, um, over in Bellevue. Okay. On the West side. Um, that one took off. And so our open house here in Spokane, Spokane Valley, actually on pines, 924 South pines. Uh, our open house was on August 24th. And, um, I did my best to kind of shout from the rooftops. Hey, this is a new offering in our area. Um, we're in network with most of the major insurance companies. We'll awesome. even shoot for single case agreements on Medicaid. We can't promise it, but we're having huge success with it. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it kind of seemed like it was a little bit slow for the first couple of weeks. But then once school started, it just, I got, my phone would not stop ringing. Inundated. So our census filled right up for the staff that we had. Our space, we can go to twice our, our capacity and we're doing that right now. We've hired more staff because our wait list is out to February right now. And I, I hate to advertise that because it will be changing. We've right. just hired a new clinician, a new case manager, a new assessor. Um, so some of those spots that are booked out in February are going to be bumping up sooner. Um, but, you know. So, so th- this need is not every community. It's huge. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. What so, kind of work are you, are you doing with the kids? Yeah. So we're licensed for both mental health and substance use disorder. But I want to say that with, you know, an explanation. Sure. We're mental health primary. And a good way to think about that is if a kiddo is needing detox, 
um, specifically for something that could be life-threatening like alcohol or benzodiazepines, we're going, we have to, you know, ethically, we're insisting on addressing that first and then they can come to us. We're an outpatient clinic. We offer two levels of care, partial hospitalization and IOP. And, um, it's not to say that we can't address issues around substance use and we certainly will. Um, but it's not necessarily a disqualifier from our program. Uh, if, if a kid is using it experimentally, like smoking marijuana at a party on a weekend, like we're going to address that. Right. And North point as a whole is really big on getting off of all substances. Um, so that's what we do out there. Wild. Yeah. Is North point, um, standing up any other kind of clinics out here? Yeah, the secret sauce. <laughs> but yeah, we know that the uh yeah, the need is much. What and... I'll what I'll say yeah. is we had a building. We had a couple of buildings. We own them. Um and we were getting ready to start those up. Um COVID kind of threw a wrench into a lot of things. Oh, and yeah. I'm guessing you guys experienced similar um issues with regard to staffing. It's it's a precarious, it's impossible to hire people right now. It's a precarious time to make a huge investment in a new offering. Um, I think it bodes well that Imagine is taking right off the ground. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see something in the near future, but I'm not gonna. I can't definitively say yes. Well, I understand. Like we're uh, having our hiring challenges, no doubt about it, and we try to help a population that has a historic eighty percent uh, unemployment rate. And so you're like, oh, yeah, it should be easy to help, you know, access people and um, show them, you know, this employment journey and get on board. And we're just having a, a tough time. So we're just kind of we're reimagining our uh, our way of doing work and telling our story. And so we can expand because, yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there uh, in the employment world. We just need to find a way to, like, tell our story better. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting that so a lot of people have come on our show and we've talked a lot about the homelessness issue in Spokane and we keep hearing it's a hot like, topic right it's the topic it feels like it um but a lot of misinformation too going on yeah we've uh when you read the newspaper when you see in the news it's like oh yeah 80 percent of people experiencing homelessness or you know, have mental health issues. It's like, well, is that really true? Like, you don't, I can't like, I don't know what's true anymore and I'm in this world. So it's just, it's kind of, uh, it's hard to understand, you know, where do you go? How do you help? And maybe from your perspective, if you could share with us, you know, like, Maybe we have family members. Maybe we have friends. Maybe they're experiencing homelessness. Maybe they're in deep in addiction. Like, what are we, what's the first step? Mm -hmm. Well, I think even if we accept that notion uh, of 80% of people experiencing homelessness have mental health issues, if we accept that as fact, um, the argument can be raised, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I think a lot of it is systemic. I don't think that we can easily solve this issue with, you know, putting up a building and putting them in there and putting some clinicians next to them and even providing them resources. 
that's going to solve the issue. I think it's going to help a tremendous amount of people um, in the short term kind of dig themselves out, give them the tools to dig themselves yep. out of that situation. But even then you have to question, do they want that? Um, because we, I think as humans are really adaptable and really accepting and we get used to our routines, habits, and patterns. Um, and so, you know, I'll just throw this out there. I'm not the, the biggest volunteer in the world, but I did volunteer and I'm tied to Jules Helping Hands, Julie Garcia, Camp Hope. Um, and, you know, going out there, yes, you have the cases where people are like, I need to get out of here. I want to get a roof over my, my head. I need help getting access to a job. I'm a felon and it's hard or difficult. Um, and so, even in that case, you can provide those resources. But then there are also people who are accustomed and comfortable in that lifestyle, who don't want to go to detox, right. who don't want to get off the opiates, um, who are comfortable playing Russian roulette with fentanyl. Um, so that to me is is a good sign that it's it's more systemic than we than we want to admit. Um, and I think you know not that this is the end all solution, but I think it starts with our youth. Right. I think addressing these issues before they become chronic is really important. Um, and I'll speak from my own experience, you know, growing up, my, my childhood wasn't particularly traumatic compared to some of the other stories I've heard, especially when people are navigating their, you know, their path of entry into our treatment program. Um, but you know, trauma is trauma. That's one thing I preach everywhere I go. Crisis doesn't happen to a certain type of family or demographic. It happens to everybody. Um, and if we don't address and heal, unpack and heal from that trauma early on, then it's going to show up at some point for me, it was in my twenties and pretty hardcore. Um, so I, I look back and I realize that my parents were doing their absolute best. Sure. Um, and I feel like if somebody would have pulled me from, you know, I was a straight A student for the most part, I think I had a couple of B's, um, and, you know, full disclosure, my senior year, I did have one C minus economics because I had, <laughs> Dang I you, had Gabe. checked Jeez. out at that point. I went to my first party, <laughs> found alcohol and was like, I'm done. Um, but no, I was I was a good student and I was very involved with extracurriculars. I was in every single high school play. I played basketball. Um, and, you know, looking back, I realized that from sunup to sundown, I was running on anxiety like I was running away from my feelings and it just looked good on the outside because I was accomplishing things. Yeah. But if I, somebody could have identified that I was struggling and pulled me out of my environment for a couple weeks, a month, two months and like talk to me, how are you feeling? Like what is going on for you? What did it feel like when your parents separated? Then I think, um, perhaps some of the damage that I caused in my twenties could have been avoided. Not to say that I regret it because that's kind of sculpted me into who I am today. Um, but if you look at some of the harder cases, the people who are, you know, experiencing chronic conditions um, or their conditions have turned into something else that's irreversible, um, and some of these people are homeless today, you know, what could have we had done more along the lines of early, early intervention? Well, and that makes sense. If you're talking about a systemic issue, well, you got to go to the beginning. Mm -hmm. That is in childhood. Yeah. I just learned about ACEs scores not too long ago. It's maybe yeah. a couple of years now. And that blew my mind. I was yeah. like, what? Well, it might I didn't be a little know. bit more because, I mean, I hear about that. But again, I'm not a clinician. So I'm well, see, neither am I. So I can't really talk to this very much. So this is my layman terms is essentially uh, the studies came out that if certain 
experiences happened in your childhood and there was a score i think like maybe one to nine and i'm sorry i'm screwing this up listeners but if you reach a certain number on that score all of a sudden um likeliness of addiction obesity um all sorts of stuff just your life uh Mm -hmm span is going to come down and just really interesting. I, I encourage you to like, just go check it out. Um, okay. cause yeah, when it came, uh, when the science collided with like, Oh yeah, shit happens when you're a kid. I just, it was really powerful for me to, uh, understand that. Yeah. And that's kind of the work that I think on the volunteer level for myself, I'd like, I want to get more involved, like helping the kids. Yep. They need it. We talk about that in the disability world too, because uh, when historically, it's not everyone just, but we we've seen a pattern of this. Is you might be in the school system, you're, you know, you're labeled for one with a disability, and all of a sudden, you're not getting talked to about your job when you graduate. It's the talking about services, and. Right there, I just think it's a huge issue with what we're working on because we're talking about employment. And if you never saw yourself as being employed, and I, I remember getting talked to when I was a little kid, like, oh, yeah, you're going to have a job. You're going to do stuff. If you don't have that opportunity, it's just it's harder to overcome that. And so that's kind of stuff we're working on with the kids is, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, well, there's a lot. It's a big world. Lots of opportunities. Yeah. But, yeah, working on. Um, well, there are plenty. Yeah plenty of jobs out there, right, that um, offer, they're offered to people with disabilities. Just because you have a particular disability doesn't mean that you can't be a productive member of society. No, <laughs> it <Yeah>. does not. <laughs> yeah, and but maybe that's a systemic thing, too. It's like just because humans have accepted this, I, I, I'm claiming we can blow that up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. We just got to start younger, talk more, be more real, and then... Uh, yeah, maybe we can make some change. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a line that can be drawn between the disability community and, and the adult SUD, you know, the, the people with criminal records. Just because they have a criminal record doesn't mean they're a bad person. Right. doesn't mean they're unemployable. And so, you know, there are organizations in our community that are really, um, my hat's off to them for off- offering those second chance opportunities for, for felons. I know... Uh our account manager and, you know, recruiting czar at Skillskin, Dana Devine, uh, she's really working hard right now to try to, you know, see how we can help in, in that world too. Because even our program, the Ability One program, um, addiction is counting at this point uh, if it has kept you from getting uh, a job or maintaining a job. So that just kind of happened uh, in our program where we've, that's come to light. So let me uh, make sure I'm understanding yeah. this. Uh, hypothetical, you have somebody applying for a job who has a gap on their resume. And you go, how do you explain the gap in your work history? And they go, well, I'm going to get vulnerable here. I was struggling with addiction. And I went to treatment. And that's why I didn't work for a year and a half. You're saying that? That person is who we want to start talking to. Yeah. And yeah. And we don't know if we'll be successful, but yeah, we got to give people a chance here. It's like you can, yeah, so we're going to try. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, if you get a call from Dana, pick up that phone. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, the case managers and the employment specialists at all the treatment centers need to be aware of that. Okay. So there's employment specialists in this world too? Yeah. I was one of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to brag a little bit if that's all right. Please do. Yeah. Uh, when I was doing it for that particular company, um, we had probably somewhere around three dozen people in our outpatient program at a given time. And I did that for about a year and the turnover is, you know, one or two a week. Sure. So over a year, I don't even know how much that's too much math for me, but let's just say there are a hundred people yep. that I was doing employment consulting with. Um, we had a success rate of 95% or better. Holy smokes. And a lot of them were felons, but it took a lot of creative energy. You know, you have to find the people that are willing to, to at least give them an interview. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, call I'm, me and I'll get you connected. <laughs> Woohoo. <clears throat> that seems like a very high rate. So I would love to hear more about like what what kind of story were you telling to these employers to like just have them say yes, all right, I'll give someone a shot. Like what was there any secret sauce there? Well, I don't know about secret sauce as much as it is just showing up and being real. Um, oftentimes these jobs are entry level jobs and they're manual labor jobs. So let's not beat around the bush. Like it's a job, it's a paycheck. It's something to get them started. It's a start. And that's what I would tell the clients. This isn't your dream job that we're looking for. We're trying to get some employment on your recent work history. So you don't have to love it. You don't have to want to be here forever. But most of the time, once they started working, they found value and self-worth. And even though going into it, they're like, oh, I'm going to hate, you know, manufacturing windows or whatever. Uh, most of the time they're like, I am so happy. I feel so accomplished and I can't wait to see what the next step is. You are right. There are parallels between the work we're doing and in the community that you're serving. Some of the same language we talk about. I love that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's make this bridge a little stronger, right? I would love yeah. to. <laughs> Absolutely. Skill skin for me has kind of always been a little bit of a nebula. Like I'm not quite sure. Like it seems like there are a lot of different services provided. I'm not quite sure how it would fit in there. Dana's smiling at me. <laughs> I'm guessing this isn't the first time you've heard this. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Like we've been around for, this is year 52 and um, we're just trying to continue to tell our story. I mean, our, our primary focus is employment, employment with people with disabilities. We do that as a federal contractor. We, we kind of call ourselves a social enterprise. Uh, we don't raise money. We just do work for, for a fee-for-service model. Okay. So we're out in Air Force bases in three different states. We're here in Spokane. We're in Great Falls, Montana, and Cheyenne, Wyoming. We have about 250 employees uh, across those operations. Uh, just across the street from here is the federal courthouse. Uh, we do all the custodial services over there and uh, take care of all the ground. So when it's snowing, we're out pushing that snow around. Um, we have a laundry uh, company uh, where we're, we're doing lots of laundry, uh, manufacturing, we make stuff, we partner with uh, folks like Kaiser Aluminum uh, and build some things for them. It's, uh, yeah, we just did a project for Travis Pattern. Like, so we have, a, we do a lot of different things 
And we're just starting to tell our story more now and really getting connected to the community. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's is fantastic. We're proud of what we're doing. And we know we can't do it alone, right? We need help. And we need to know our community. And so bringing in people that are doing the good work, you know, like yourself, you know, just wants to be like, hey, I'm in my purpose. I'm ready. How do I connect? That's who we're trying to connect with. And just, uh, yeah. Tell everyone a little bit about what's going on. That's awesome. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Isaac Foundation is in the old Skillskin building. (laughs) You are correct. Yeah. Yeah. So even that kind of partnership. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Holly in that group. Holly was uh, on uh, our podcast a couple weeks ago. Shout out, Holly. No doubt, Holly. What up? (laughs) Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, she told some great stories, too. Um, And just the work they're doing. So, yeah, we're, we're connecting with them and so we put together a a nice little partnership to help them expand uh their square feet really help um you know expand the playhouse and they're starting to serve more people i cannot remember how many um people they've touched this year i want to say it was close to a thousand people she said thousand uh, people and families and yeah so that's the kind of partnership that you know we're, we're trying to be a part of yeah, on the wall in there, she's got all, I don't know if she still does, but they were doing a fundraiser. She had all those envelopes. Did yeah, you see I those? am number 15. 15, very <laughs> yeah. nice. I think I'm number like 82 because I had 82 Big bucks spender, in my big spender. <laughs> but weren't there something like a thousand envelopes on the wall? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And they're just, yeah, really committed. You know what I love what they're doing right now is they took that parking lot and now they are... Um, renting spaces and anytime there's an event at the arena and i'm like this is genius it is oh, so wow. smart parking for a purpose is what they're calling it I'm like nice. money awesome yeah. yeah absolutely um yeah so that's kind of skillskin we have an employment services uh group as well so we're out uh working with the county um we get a referral in and then we help an individual find employment in the community. So that's another big chunk of what we do. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you we, you name it, we try to do it. And we, we'll try anything once. And <laughs> we try to fail fast <laughs> and uh, just stay focused. And, you know, if we're living by our values and, and trying new things. I can get behind that good. 100%. Heck I don't yeah. always say the right thing or do the right thing. Um, but I'm trying, you know, I'm pushing, pushing that envelope kind of like when we open this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. Gabe, I'm wondering anything that you'd like to just share with our listeners, um, maybe some parting thoughts. Yeah. If it's okay, I, I would be remiss if I didn't kind of plug, um, our larger company a little bit. Um, although we're not established in the Spokane Coeur d'Alene area, we have a hospital over in Edmonds, and we have one down in Boise. It's brand new, 44 beds. Cool. And this is for the adults. This is true co-occurring, high-acuity mental health coupled with substance use disorder. Um, a lot of the barriers that are gen- you know, traditionally there when you're seeking treatment are knocked out of the way with North Point. So anybody with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, somebody on a CPAP machine, somebody with mobility issues, those aren't barriers anymore. Um, if people, wow. if adults are seeking treatment, whether it's with North Point or, you know, else they end up landing elsewhere, I'd love to be included and, um, help facilitate that. I think our community, 
as you as we've seen, some of the options have kind of fizzled away right. over the years. And so, yes, I recognize that we're we're not in Spokane. However, and my story is a testament to this. Sometimes a geographical is that missing ingredient. So it might be a good idea for somebody to get out of town for 28 days, do the detox and inpatient, and come back, and I'll get them plugged in with you know Breakthrough or Colonial or YFA or any of the resources that are that are out here for outpatient. Um, but I would like to would like to put it out there that I can be a resource for adult SUD. We are so thankful for this conversation. I know our, our listeners are probably on the edge of their seats, just like I am. And just, I hope uh, so. Absolutely. That's nice to hear. This is, the, this is how we change the world, right? And, you know, just having information <laughs> and just knowing where to reach. It's so important. And when people, you know, you care and we can tell. And just, yeah, we're grateful. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks, you too.